you know, it also, like we mentioned in the topic, you know, it poses a lot of challenges for the parents as well, which we'll talk about. You know, Doc, uh, you make a very good point there indeed. And as you said, you know, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you a normal child, you know, you should count his favors upon you. And even uh, these uh, challenge children, and uh, maybe, you know, we are told that uh, our darja and our status in the, uh, you know, I'm talking about parents will be higher in the akhirah, inshallah. And, you know, doctor, perhaps when you look at this whole uh, situation, uh, when a child is in the mother's womb, and uh, can you, you know, as as pediatrician, uh, you know, you have all the uh, latest equipment. Uh, you know, do you get a sign of this child is going to be disabled or will the child will be dis- uh, handicapped? And, uh, you know, tell us uh, when you all go through all that uh, process and imagine an expectant mother gets to know that, you know, the child that I'm going to give birth to will be handicapped. What goes, what type of emo- emotion that, that the mother go through, you as a uh, physician, what goes through your mind and uh, perhaps the father and the, whole, you know, the extended family members? Take us through that scenario, doctor. Okay, so Alhamdulillah, you know, with advanced medical technology, it is possible to diagnose a lot of physical handicaps or physical disabilities in babies when they are still developing in the womb. So we call that in the fetus. With advanced um, ultrasound techniques, you know, we can pick up a lot of congenital abnormalities or malformations. Congenital meaning those malformations or abnormalities that will be present at birth, for example, a cleft lip. So some babies are born with an abnormality of the lip where the lip isn't formed properly. That's just a simple example. Some babies are born with congenital heart disease. So they're born with certain defects in the heart and those can be picked up on an ultrasound scan. Um, some of them are not such severe heart defects, and some of those heart defects are life-threatening, where, you know, the baby might only survive a day or two or a week or two after birth. If, 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 if surgery can be done, then obviously those options are discussed with the parents in detail. Sometimes those heart defects are so severe that they're not, not treatable. So those things can be picked up. Then abnormalities in the brain, abnormalities with almost any of the organs, for example, abnormalities of the kidneys or an absent kidney, abnormalities of the brain. Sometimes you get severe brain malformations. Sometimes we pick up severe spine deformities in these babies. And then a lot of genetic conditions as well can be diagnosed antenatally, for example. And one of the commonest ones that we see on a day-to-day basis is Down syndrome, which is also called trisomy 21. And I'm sure we have listeners out there who have children with Down syndrome. So Down syndrome is one of the commonest genetic abnormalities that we find in, in babies, and it can be diagnosed before birth. And then we have to obviously counsel the parents and sometimes the extended family, like the grandparents, uh, about this, this diagnosis. Sometimes there's other bony defects that the baby has, like abnormally shaped or sized limbs. Either the limbs are too short or they're abnormal in shape. So these things can be picked up antenatally. A lot of it can be diagnosed. Even other genetic conditions that are not so common, but we do see them like spinal muscular atrophy can also be diagnosed um, antenatally by, by, by means of a blood test. So we can either use ultrasound techniques and other scanning methods, or we can use blood tests to determine whether this baby or fetus, this developing baby in the womb, has an abnormality. And then obviously, 
once we confirm the diagnosis, we have to sit down and discuss it with the parents. And it's it's actually difficult for the doctor and for the whole team that's managing this pregnancy, including the obstetrician. Sometimes we get a geneticist involved as well to sit down and break the news to the parents because remember, and all of us who have experienced the joy of having children know how exciting it is when Allah Ta'ala blesses a, a couple with a child or with a pregnancy, you know. We always expect uh, a normal pregnancy, a healthy baby born at full term, and then, you know, life throws these curved balls at us that we have to deal with, and these tests from Almighty Allah, and then we are given this news that shatters us where we're told that your baby has a severe heart defect or has a brain abnormality or has a genetic abnormality, like you get the other ones, not so common, but I have seen them like trisomy 18 called Edwards syndrome, which is usually not compatible with life if a, if a baby is born with it. So, you know, it's, it's devastating news for the parents because one is the mother now has to carry her baby to full term or until the, the, the obstetrician decides it's, it's the best timing for the delivery of the baby, knowing that this baby is going to be born with some severe abnormality and sometimes those abnormalities can be corrected over a period of time. Some of them can take months with multiple operations before we can correct it. Some of them, unfortunately, or no, no means of correcting it. And so the parents know that they are, the, the mother knows that she's going to carry this baby up to term and then deliver a baby that's not going to survive after the baby is born. So it's, it, it, you know, it emotionally drains the family, the parents. Uh, you know, it, it causes a lot of psycho, psychological trauma. It's, it's a very stressful period. It causes a lot of... Uh, you know, loss of self-esteem and, you know, it affects the parents' relationship sometimes because they start feeling guilty, they start questioning, and it's all human reactions, you know. Like, we start questioning, is it because I did something wrong? Is it because I didn't do something? Or is it because I ate something or didn't eat something? But I think the important message for our listeners out there is we must accept that whatever Allah Allah gives us is from Him, and it is a test for Him. And I always tell parents of children, we call it children with special needs, needs of physically disabled or physically challenged children, I always tell these parents when I counsel them that Almighty Allah has chosen you as the parent of this child with special needs because there's something special in you that he has found and he has decided to because he knows that you are the best person who would be able to love and care for this baby. So it is actually, we shouldn't look at it as a form of punishment from Allah, but as a blessing from Him. Because of all the parents in the world, this special baby with special needs was given to you for a very special reason by Almighty Allah. And that's how we should look at it. It is a gift from Him, and we must we must treat this baby as a gift from Him, and, 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 and show this baby all that love that this baby needs, and all the extra care that this baby needs because that parent and that mother was chosen for this baby for a very special reason by Almighty Allah.
Well said there, Doctor. And, you know, I, I like your refined disposition. And uh, perhaps on, on, on that note, we should talk about the sensitivity of people, you know, when you meet uh, the parent uh, that is uh, challenged by this child and, you know, have uh, has this type of child. Uh, we, there should be a word in season, you know. Uh, there are certain things that we should say when the baby is born uh, with a disability. Perhaps, you know, being gentle with the mother said, you know what, don't worry, I'm here for you. Uh, or you call me or text me. You know, I'm here. I can take care of your pets and so forth. Uh, what are some of the suggestions that you can give, you know, when the mother is there and she's in that moment where she's, you know, uh, she, she doesn't know what to make of the whole situation, a word in season. What are some of the things that we should say? But uh, you, you said it very eloquently, but can we add on to that, uh, doctor, or to, uh, to tell those insensitive uh, people or family members that, you know, sometimes say the wrong thing and exacerbate the problem, uh, doctor? And that's a very, very important point that you brought up, and um, I'll touch on that in a few moments. Uh, so usually when a baby is born with a congenital defect or malformation or abnormality, like we spoke about earlier, they are already aware that there is a problem with this baby. So the news was already mentally prepared, they've been psychologically prepared, emotionally prepared to a certain extent to accept that they're not going to have a normal healthy baby. So a lot of the work is done beforehand, which makes a huge difference. When it becomes a significant challenge for us as the caregivers and for the parents and families, if they don't know and these abnormalities are picked up after the baby is born because then it comes as a shock to them. So they were expecting a normal healthy baby to be born. They were told all along that everything is fine, the baby is growing well, everything looks normal. And then when the baby is born, we pick up a problem and we have to break the news to them. So that becomes a great challenge for all of us, including the parents, because then it becomes as a big shock. Also, the second important point here to mention is that what we must realize as caregivers, as family, as friends, as neighbors, and even as the ordinary passerby at the park or at the mall or wherever we encounter these people, is, you know, we must think, and this is what you had mentioned, is that those those parents that are raising this child with special needs, they go through a lot, you know. They require, to put it simply, extra thinking, extra planning for this child, extra energy to look after this child. They have sleepless nights because these children, you know, they don't sleep well, they don't eat well. So it causes parents to start feeling isolated, lonely. Sometimes they go through struggles, you know. Sometimes because of these disabilities, they're unable to go to work or they're unable to work for time because they've got to care for this child. They have extra medical expenses. So they also go through financial difficulties. They go through all these emotional challenges, mental challenges. They go through sleepless nights. So there's a lot of it that they go through. And, and like you mentioned, and it's a very important point, is we need to be very sensitive, especially about passing remarks, or about giving these people these stares when we see their child, you know, looking at the child or making a comment or making a remark. What we have to realize is that often this people get hurt because as it is they are going through so much they often feel isolated from the rest of society. I mean sometimes there might be a wedding in the family or a function or a walima or a jalsa. They cannot attend because the child is unwell or the child will not be able to cope in an environment like that or it's not uh, safe for the child because the immune systems are weak or whatever to take the child out to, to, to gathering and they, they get deprived of all these uh, type of, of occasions you know, or even an Eid function where the family gets together, sometimes because of the child's illness and that they're unable to take their child out. So they're already isolated, they already feel lonely, and you know, sometimes.
the few odd rare occasions that they are able to take the child out. They're exposed to people. Sometimes people don't do it intentionally, you know, but it's very important for us to educate ourselves, and that's why you brought up this point, and, and I'm so happy that you did. So what we need to do is we need to, to be educated about these things so that we, we take into cognizance that, you know, these parents actually go through a lot, so we should try to be very sensitive and very supportive to them, if anything, rather than making comments or staring at them or staring at the child or asking questions that might make them feel uncomfortable. I think it's very important to, to support them in whichever way we can, to not make them uncomfortable and to try and bring them into society and to try and, 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 and bring them into our homes and families and welcome them and help them and obviously make dua for them, uh, you know, so that, so that we, can, we, can, we can be of benefit to them rather than, than being of any harm to them. Mm. You know, Doc, I can hear your colleague, yeah, that Dr. Zubair Tular Khan in Cape Town. He's listening <laughs> to you, and he's getting thumbs up. Hey, yeah, I tell you, Dr. Ridwani is really firing on all cylinders. Now, Doc, <laughs> you know, you brought a lot of issues, and you said uh, perhaps, you know, you have a, a child that is, uh, you know, challenging or being challenged uh, and impacting on the parents. And uh, will be tied if the parents can't afford it. And, uh, doctor, you know, as you said, the medical uh, bills are too high or the parents don't have the capacity to take care of the child. And, the, you know, it may be too much for, the, for them. Uh, an important question to ask you, do people give up disabled babies? And, you know, uh, I believe mainly from the Western side, Many parents uh, choose to give up the uh, the autistic child because they just can't afford it, uh, you know, and they 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 impacted with their own mental health and so forth. Uh, your, your reaction? Look, in my own personal experience, I mean, I've come across uh, lots of cases of babies and children born with severe handicaps, severe disabilities, severe uh, mental disorders. But alhamdulillah, I haven't really come across a parent who gave up their child because of that. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Yes, it would certainly happen in many societies. But I would, I would say, I mean, I deal predominantly with people from, from the from the Indian and 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 uh, African populations, and generally, you know, our culture is such that we look after these children and we and these babies, and we bring them up to the best of our abilities and what is within our resources. Uh, so, a lot of the, you know the, the causes of, of of genetic abnormalities are, are, are race dependent. So, some genetic diseases are more common in certain race groups, and. You know, our, our cultural background and our religious background also plays a very important role on how we manage these patients and what we would do for them, like whether we would keep them or give them up, or even whether some people would terminate the pregnancy or, or continue with the pregnancy. Now, I'll give you the simple case uh, scenario is, is of a Muslim parent. I mean, our basic Islamic teaching is, you know, to terminate a pregnancy is or an abortion for a medical reason in this case where you have an abnormal baby is not permissible. And that's what I tell the Muslim parents when they do approach me with regards to this, you know, that as Muslims, we do not terminate a pregnancy because we are told that the baby has a severe heart disease or the baby has Down syndrome or the baby has some form of a genetic disability that's going to make this child a burden to the parents and to society. We accept that this is from Allah and that we will take 
care of this child to the best of our ability and whatever lifespan Allah has written for this child, then we will accept it as that whether the doctor's card is going to be one day or one year or ten years, that is in almighty Allah's hands. So, you know, as a Muslim, because of our religious background and of our religious inclinations and teachings, we would manage these, these pregnancies very differently. But if you look at other religious uh, denominations and people from other religious backgrounds, and they often do it, they do a termination of pregnancy. If they are told your baby has Down syndrome, the reason I'm saying Down syndrome is because it's the commonest genetic abnormality that we, uh, that we encounter. Uh, or if they told your baby has, a, has an incurable heart disease, they often terminate the pregnancy so that they don't have to go through all that emotional trauma and psychological trauma of dealing with a sick baby, a sick child who's probably going to die. So our religious inclinations and our beliefs and our cultural backgrounds play a very big role in how, as a, as, as a family unit, we decide to manage this uh, this problem. Also, the support structure at home, you know, if there is good support structure from uh, the extended family, the grandparents, the uncles, the aunts, then it gives the parents more confidence that they will be able to handle such a situation. And then obviously the financial resources as well. You do get uh, facilities that look after these children, like boarding schools and that on a long time, on a long term basis. Uh, that's more for parents who can't cope with these very difficult children. But in my own personal experience, that's not a very common thing. I mean, I, I have some of some patients like with cerebral palsy, which is a, uh, a, 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 a disorder of the brain function that's caused by an abnormality that occurs after birth. For example, if the baby didn't get enough oxygen at the time of birth, or the baby had a meningitis um, early on after birth, so that brain gets permanently damaged, and these children are blind, they deaf, they can't sit, they can't walk, they can't feed themselves, they have lots of complications. And unfortunately, we do see these cases from time to time. And I mean, I have some kids that are now like 12, 13 years old with cerebral palsy, and their parents actually look after them, and it's amazing how much of love and how much of care they show for them. And and that, that actually touches, you know, the, the heart, because you see the love that Almighty Allah puts uh, in these parents' hearts for these children, even with all these disabilities. And I see it, you know, frequently, almost on a daily basis. And it's, it's, it's really amazing how much of love Allah puts in the parents' hearts for the child with all these disabilities and, and how they care for this child and how they look after them. It's, it's really touching. I tell you, you're really touching us uh, this evening, Doctor, with your empathy, your love, your care, and uh, the manner you're delivering it. It uh, really shows uh, that, you know what, you uh, really have substance in you, a lot of hikmah, and alhamdulillah, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has really blessed you for being on our platform also and conscientizing us. Uh, time for us to go to the marketplace, and inshallah, we will continue after that. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. On 8.34 Central African Time, in conversation now with our doctor, the pediatrician, Dr. Ridwan Umar, uh, topic dealing with the physically challenged babies and the impact on the parents. Uh, doctor, you know, perhaps the question is, uh, how do we integrate a challenged uh, child uh, socially? I mean, it's important because human beings, no matter how challenged they are, but the bottom line is, in, in whatever condition, they are social beings. Your thoughts on that, doctor? So 
that would depend on the level of disability that this child has and how we would integrate the child into society and socially. If it's a mild disability, then it's not difficult to integrate them into society with rehabilitation. For example, if you have a child with uh, autism or an autistic spectrum disorder, and I'm sure our listeners out there have children with this problem, um, it's a developmental disorder that causes problems with, with their behavior, with their social conduct, um, and with communication skills. So these children are unable to speak. They're aggressive. They have uh, disruptive behavior tendencies. They have conduct disorders. Uh, they can become very violent. So these type of children, if, if it's diagnosed early, uh, they can, they can with, with speech and language therapy, with occupational therapy by specialized therapists, you know, and, and specialized schooling. Initially, you get specialized schools that deal with these children. They can gently be reintegrated into society. But on the other hand, if we have a child who's, for example, deaf, that's, that's, that's a physical handicap that's common, it's not so easy to reintegrate that child into society because that child requires sign language for communication. And obviously, the only people that would be able to communicate with the child are people who are familiar with sign language and have been trained in that. And usually, they would uh, train the parents of those children and the siblings as well so that they would be able to communicate with that child. But to, 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 to have that child uh, go, uh, you know, go to a normal school and, and, and mix with normal children would be very difficult because communication is going to be uh, a great challenge for that child. The same token, if you have a child who's got blindness for whatever reason, it's very difficult to integrate them into, into normal society because of those physical challenges that they have. So it all depends. Yes, sir, doctor. Yeah, you know, no, no, absolutely brilliant. You know, you're, you're just going through, and whilst you're talking, my mind is uh, uh, working on, uh, you know, overtime also. You know, I was just thinking, you know, how do we deal with a stubborn child with their special needs? You know, perhaps uh, uh, praise them or praise their behavior, and if they're acting uh, otherwise, uh, just uh, ignore the bad behavior. Will that work? So that's a very common problem that we see in children. You know, we call them disruptive behavior disorders or conduct disorders. And it's caused by a variety of reasons, either autism. We find it in children with ADHD, so the children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. They often have disruptive behavior. They're aggressive. They're violent. I see them in my rooms. They bite their mothers. They pull their hair. They hit them. And, and, and it, you can actually feel the pain. You know, it's, they, they're so violent. Now, there's different approaches to their... Uh, to managing them, it's what we call a multidisciplinary approach. So we can use medication to a certain extent to calm them down, to reduce, uh, you know, those aggressive tendencies. And the medication is actually quite effective in doing that and, and in helping calm these children down. Then it's also the rehabilitation aspect where we have to get uh, occupational therapists, they play a very important role. We get specialized occupational therapists that deal with these children with conduct disorders and behavior disorders. And if there are parents out there who have children with behavior problems, it's very important to consult with a pediatrician and, and get a referral to a, a specialized occup occupational therapist because they can do a lot by working with these children. And, and, and they use specialized techniques to teach these children, you know, correct forms of behavior and and, and they achieve relatively good results with them. Um, the other aspect would be, you know, getting a psychologist involved 
a child psychologist to to work with the child, and that that also has a positive impact on the child's overall behavior. And it's also very important to get a psychologist to look after the family, the parents and the other siblings, because what we must realize is that these parents go through a lot with this child, and it takes a strain on them physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, sometimes financially as well. So they also need that support from a psychologist to help them deal with these problems, because they often go through, you know, problems of loss of self-esteem, they can feel depressed, they can go, they can have anxiety disorders because of this, they can suffer with panic attacks. So so these parents go through a lot of uh, mental cha- challenges themselves uh, dealing with these children. You know, these children often have sleep dysregulation as well, so they don't sleep well at night. So these parents don't sleep well at night. Then they've got to function normally during the day because they've got other kids, they've got work commitments. So it takes a lot out of these parents. And therefore, it's very important to, to not only treat the child, but to treat the parents as well and to be sensitive to what the parents are going mm. through. So. You know, to summarize, it's, there's, there's a lot of effective medication for the child to control that aggressive behavior. That And the, the part of the aggressive behavior is the stubbornness and everything else that goes with it. And then, obviously, it's, it's addressing the, you know, the rehabilitation part of it, which primarily would be occupational therapists and specialized teachers, usually in a specialized school. But those are costly uh, uh, exercises to, to, to put your child into. And if it's affordable, then, then alhamdulillah, you know, it's, it's, it's a good option because you get good results and then it's getting a psychologist to manage the, the parents and the child and then with regards to the question that you asked, you know, how do you manage the child at home? And that's very important. So we should never punish these children. We should never chastise these children. Uh, you know, and we should, we should actually be very kind and loving towards them and yes, like you mentioned, positive reinforcement is a very, very important aspect in, in, in and rewarding aspect in managing these children. So a simple thing that I give these children, uh, the parents, uh, when they come to my rooms, is a rewards chart. So it's a little uh, uh, chart that's uh, made of this uh, this white board that you can wipe, you know, with a bright and white pen. And it comes with a seven-day uh, t- timetable or calendar. And we set a goal for each week for the child. But obviously, that depends on the child's mental functioning and intellectual capacity as well. And so I tell the parents, simple rewards, like a, cat, a chocolate, you know, for example. If your child wants a chocolate, you tell them, okay, let's let's set these tasks for the week. And if you can get majority of them right, then you'll get your chocolate or your ice cream or we'll take you out for a treat. We'll take you for a walk on the beach and buy you an ice cream or we'll take you cycling or whatever. We'll take you to go and play at the park. So I'd always tell the parents, set a target for the week, negotiate it with your child. And, and it really works. I've had lots of feedback from parents that tell me how well this reward chart works. So, you know, for each day, you, you have the seven days of the week, and then for each day, it's simple things. Brushed my teeth, uh, made my bed, you know, got dressed for school, ate my breakfast, did my homework, uh, did my madrasa work, or read my sabak, whatever, and the mom or dad just puts a tick on each one, and if they get the ticks for the whole week, then they get a, a reward for that that's negotiated. So whatever your child wants, you set a reward, and you say, okay, you, you, you get all these ticks done for the week, and this will be your reward. It really works well, and there's a lot of scientific studies to show that this positive reinforcement actually works for these children. So punishing them and, and you know, uh, physically abusing them and hitting them, and that sometimes, you know, we are all insane, we human beings. You know, you lose your 
you're cool and you just sometimes might take it out on the child, but it doesn't work at all. That's what we need to know. <clears throat> if you're dealing with a child, for example, with temper tantrums, there I always tell the parents you should just ignore the child and walk away. So temper tantrums is a very common problem in pediatrics, especially in the two, three, uh, four-year-old age groups. And, uh, you know, these children will, wherever they are, whether they're at home, they're visiting a relative, they're somewhere else, they will just, if they don't get what they want, you know, it's like a short circuit. They will just go into this rave, uh, rampant rave, you know, and throw a temper tantrum. They'd go on the floor and start screaming continuously. And sometimes, you know, parents will end up yelling at the child and that. And what, what the science has taught us is the most effective way of managing it is to just quietly walk away. You must give them absolutely no attention at all because it's actually an attention-seeking behavior. So the more attention they get, the more they persist with that because they know they're getting your attention. So attention can be positive attention where you try to calm them down, you hug them, you love them, and you try to pamper them. Or it can be a negative form of attention where you try to discipline them, you yell at them, and you, you know, you, you reprimand them. So either way, whether it's positive attention or negative attention, both of it won't help at all. So in the case of temper tantrums, I tell the parents, all you do is you quietly walk away. If the child is in the room, you just close the door and you walk away. Let them cry for one hour or two hours. Eventually, they get tired and they will stop. It's, 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 it's something that they will realize over a period of time. And even the young ones, as young as two years old, will realize that these, these temper tantrums and these type of, 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 of behavior uh, patterns do not draw any attention at all. It doesn't get me anywhere. It just exhausts me, and they outgrow it very quickly. I tell you, Doctor, why you so confident is because your dad used to tell you from a very young age, "You simply the best," and you know, and he used to reward you. And alhamdulillah, I know, I know your story, and you used to buy this and whatever you wanted. And today, yeah, your father must be smiling. He said, "Look, listen to my son, how he's flowing," and you know, you actually covering all angles. And I really appreciate you for that. And uh, you know, looking at some questions that are coming through, and Khalid says, "A beautiful show, brother Shafat. Keep it up." And uh, Doctor is firing. Yes, he definitely is. He says, uh, do kids who cannot talk scream a lot out of uh, frustration or are they just trying to communicate with us? Uh, uh, quite a good question there, Doctor. That is a good question. So these children that are not talking, we've got to assess at what age group are they. Um, some children, it, fall, it, it falls within the normal range where they are not uh, not talking, you know. There's, for example, a baby between the ages of 8 to 10 months uh, or 8 to 12 months should be able uh, to babble, you know, to say baba, dada, mama, tata. Uh, as they get a little older, at around 18 to 24 months, they should be able to say words between between 20 and 26 months, they should be able to combine words like go car, if they want to go in the car, you know, tell the parents, go car, come here, um, open door, you know, um, at around three years old, they should be little chatterboxes, you know, which most children are. So we have to look at the age group of the child and whether they are achieving the expected milestones with regards to their speech development. If the child hasn't and this child is screaming, then it very well could be that this child is trying to communicate and express himself or herself, and if the screaming doesn't appear as normal screaming, you know, I mean, a normal loud pitch tone that a child would speak with, then it could mean that the child is actually frustrated because they're unable to express themselves or ask for the things they want, um, and and therefore they they start they start screaming, and 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 and, and uh, you know, it, it will appear that the child is frustrated.
Sister Rabia, assalamu alaikum, doctor. I'm shocked this evening, but I want to know how true is it that if one sense is impaired, another becomes even sharper? I mean, I've heard that, you know, maybe they have a, you know, something is a challenge and the other senses become better and more stronger and more sharper. How true is that, doctor? Okay, I'm very keen to know why the sister says she's shocked. But anyway, <laughs> um, with regards to, to the point she's made, I haven't come across any scientific studies to show that, but, you know, we call it the, the medical word is anecdotal, you know, which is what people would say or what people would talk. And like Brother Shafat said, he's also seen that, and I've also seen that. So, yeah, the sister is quite right, you know. Uh, if, if Allah Ta'ala challenges a child with, with one aspect of their functions, then he gives them with another aspect. And I'll give you a simple example. For example, in the case of children with spinal muscular atrophy, which is a genetic disease of the nervous system where they cannot uh, hold their head up, they cannot sit, they cannot walk, they're extremely weak, their muscles are all, uh, you know, very uh, very shrunken. So these, these children, uh, you know, they, they, have, they have significant physical deformities, but mentally they are very intelligent children. You know, so that that physical incapacity is compensated by intellectual uh, uh, reward. You know, they they very clever and intelligent people. So I think the sister has a point that when when Allah takes something away, He gives them and rewards them with something else. Yeah, I think when she said shock, she meant maybe uh, she's fascinated with the conversation that comes. Sometimes, you know, we choose our words <laughs> wrongly. Well, I, 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 I thought maybe she's shocked at what I'm saying or something, but anyway, it's good to know <laughs> no, that no, she's fascinated with I think she's amazed with you. I mean, she's amazed. Yeah, that's the word. Uh, she's, uh, it's just, uh, you can tell us if I, if I put in the right word there for you. I use the different superlative there. Anonymous sister says, epilepsy is a common trait in, in, my, in, my, in my in-laws a family. Does the attack start in the mother's Room, doctor. So epilepsy is a is a is a common pediatric problem. Uh, it's sometimes caused by genetic, uh, you know, genetic tendencies. So people have a family history of epilepsy, and also sometimes it's caused by other factors. When after the child is born, whether they have severe head injury, or whether they have an abnormality of the brain, or whether they had an infection uh, that triggered this epilepsy, or whether they developed a cyst, you know. Post delivery, after the baby was born, maybe at one or two years old, they have a cyst growing in the brain that can trigger it. Uh, but in, in the womb itself, no, there wouldn't be any any form of epilepsy in the womb in the baby. It would only manifest after the baby is born. Zakallah for that, uh, doctor. Looking at uh, a lot of questions coming here for you. Retired Afa says, "Assalamu alaikum." Are normal children insensitive to children that are physically challenged? They ask questions uh, that is at times very rude. Why do they do this, uh, doctor? Children are very curious people, and we have to understand that. We also have to realize that they are at a stage where they want to learn, they want to know things. So they don't understand what societal norms are. So in simple words, they don't understand what is an appropriate question to ask or what is an appropriate thing to say, depending on the age and level of maturity. So that's where our role as the parents or the, the teachers or the ustad or the apa comes in, where we've got to teach these children. And we've got to teach our children from a very young age, you know, what, what, is, what are societal norms, you know, uh, 
So we got to teach them what is a, for example, a simple thing like when you go to the masjid, you know, what conduct is expected of you in the masjid. Children don't know. When they go to the masjid, they'll run around, they'll play, they'll scream because they don't know what type of behavior is expected in a masjid. Versus if you take them to a park, you know, there's a complete different type of behavior you'd expect from, from the child in the park. But they don't know the difference because of their level of intellect, their level of maturity, and how they perceive these, these environments. They don't know that society has different expectations in different environments for them. So we've got to teach them. So the same thing when it comes to children with other disabilities. A simple example is, is an obese child. We often, you know, I often see parents bringing these children to me with uh, obesity and, you know, the complaint is that, doctor, the children are laughing at my child at school. The children keep mocking my child. My child comes home crying. You know, he or she says that, you know, they tease me all sorts of funny names. Obviously, obesity is not a physical handicap per se, but these children get teased at. So children don't know and they don't understand what the norms of society are, what the etiquettes are. So we have to teach them. We have to, we have to make them understand in a, in a way that, that, that we don't offend them as well because they're also sensitive, you know. So it's a tough situation, but that is why it's important before these children actually, like we mentioned, you know, integrate them into society, these children with physical handicaps. We've got to see to what extent they can be reintegrated into mainstream society versus those who can only be, uh, you know, limited to, to, to certain types of specialized schools and environments. So that's why we have lots of associations or, or groups for children, for example, we have the Down Syndrome Association that will organize events for parents with children with Down Syndrome, like sporting events and that, because they will meet with other children with the same problems. So these children are then not exposed to, to other children who are normal and who would make fun of these kids. So remember, kids are kids, you know, they, they'll always be what they are, and they have to learn. It's a, whole, it's a whole process of learning. It's a lifetime of learning. Even we at our age, we are still learning so many things. So I think it's, it's just important that we also be sensitive to, to these children because they don't really know what they're doing. But it's important for the parents to teach them. So if we're going somewhere and we know we might encounter a child with a physical disability, there, then we must inform our children beforehand that, you know, we're going to this uh, person's house. They have a child who's on a wheelchair, who can't walk, who can't talk. Uh, you know, this is the reasons why. So we must educate them. So we must love this child. We must be kind to this child, uh, this is a very special child, you know, so, and, and, and it's amazing how these children will actually then show love to this child and, and compassion and care. So it's all about teaching and learning. Uh, well said there, Doc. And, you know, you remind me of, uh, you know, you notice uh, when a child is maybe one, two years old, and, and then they react, uh, you know, to certain individuals, when uh, they keep on smiling when they see someone, and they, you know, they want to grab them, even if it can be a total stranger. Then they meet others, and uh, the, every time they see that person, they want to cry. What is it about, uh, you know, the, the, the chemistry the kid gets or the signal from certain individuals? What can they see that we can't see, Doc? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Look, as part of the normal neurodevelopment, we do expect uh, babies to develop what they call stranger anxiety uh, from around nine months. <clears throat> but in my own experience, I even see it in babies as young as five and six months old. Mm -hmm. You know, when they see a stranger, then they, they start crying and they start showing signs that, uh, you know, they, they, they feel insecure. Uh, 
I think when it comes to the, the, the interaction with strangers in a positive way where they're actually friendly and that I think it just depends on the individual that, that's, that's interacting with them and there's something about them that charms that little baby. Uh, there's nothing more to it than that. It's as simple as that. But generally we expect stranger anxiety in babies uh, with unfamiliar faces. It's, it's a normal part of the neurodevelopmental processes. Yeah, Doc, and you know what uh, works with me all the time? Just a wink at the baby. You wink at them, you know, and they when they send, and they look at you amazed, and they'll give you a big smile. And some of them will even try to wink back at you. Hey, yeah. you know, those are like like special moments you get, eh? Yeah, so, you know, it's very important, even in our training as doctors and as pediatricians, where we taught different ways to try and establish a rapport with this baby or with this child, you know, how to approach, approach the baby in a very gentle, calm, reassuring way, how to play with the baby. And it's actually amazing how the majority of the babies will actually, um, you know, embrace you in a happy way. So it, it's all about the technique that we use to approach this baby as, or, a chi- or the child as an adult. And the majority of them will be our friends within a matter of minutes. Well, I know you're the lovable doc. Everyone likes you. The babies like you. I'm the mothers really like you. The dads like you. Hey, I just I, you know you get a lot of likes too for that. Alhamdulillah, you deserve it. Concerned brother says, uh, what about those who keep away the physically and mentally challenged kids are locked up at home, uh, no interaction with the public? Uh, is this unfair on the kid, uh, doctor? So that would depend on the level of disability that this child has. For example, if this child has a severe neurological disability, like a, a child with cerebral palsy who, who's deaf, who's blind, who can't eat, who's got a, a tube for feeding, who's unable to sit, who's lying down all the time. You know, these babies are, even if they're big, they're 10 years old, they've got to be lying down on the floor all the time or on the bed. Those children can't, can't be integrated with, with other people because they, they, they're just simply too disabled or handicapped or challenged. Uh, if a child has a minor disability, for example, a club foot, you know, where the foot is just abnormally positioned, then those children can certainly be re- reintegrated, even with, with the normal kids. So it all depends. If the child, on the other hand, is autistic, but it's a mild autistic spectrum disorder, so the child has mild behavior, communication problems, then certainly those children, to, to the extent with which they will be comfortable mixing with other children, Children, they should be encouraged. So we shouldn't isolate children for any reason whatsoever. But obviously, it depends on the level of disability or handicap. Uh, this question here says, uh, I've been told uh, by my uh, by my doctor friend not to marry my cousins because the children will be compromised. Uh, you know, you hear this all the time. How true is that? You know, you're wearing too closely and then you'll watch your children won't, uh, you know, they'll be uh, handicapped and so forth. Uh, any truth in that, doctor? So the concept that we, we, we use in medical terms is called consanguinity. Consanguinity is marriage between very close relatives. Now, as a Muslim, you know, it is my duty to first uh, to answer the question first as a Muslim and then as a doctor. As a Muslim, we believe that marriage in Islam is permissible with first degree, uh, with relatives such as your cousins, you know, and they are relatively close in terms of the blood lineage, you know. Uh, so... He, 
the, the answer to the question is yes, you can marry because Islam permits marriage between cousins, you know, first cousins. Uh, but from a medical point of view, there is evidence to show that certain genetic disorders, like certain types of thalassemia and that, um, and other conditions, can the risk can be higher if their parents are. Uh, uh, closely related. So, so whenever a baby is born with a genetic abnormality and you see a doctor, a very important part of the history is to find out, we call it, if it is a consanguineous marriage, which means if this marriage is between close relatives. Because we even find it not only in Muslims, I think even uh, amongst Jews, they, they also can marry closely. And so therefore, they also see in their... Uh, societies, certain types of genetic disorders, there is. So there's no definite that if you cousins and you marry, your children will have abnormalities. Uh, but the risk is slightly increased. There's definitely an increased risk for genetic mm. disorders, certain genetic disorders. Well answered the doctor, and Allah bless you for that. And uh, truly, I don't know, uh, did you ever think of getting into politics, sir, doc? I did when I was much younger. I always wanted to become the president of the country. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know what? I can make you a president of a Dawa organization. Just tell me vote when you for want me, to Shafat, then I'll stand for elections there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, you beautiful doctor, and you uh, did a, a brilliant uh, presentation this evening. Perhaps your parting words, uh, Doc? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, well, firstly, we always praise and thank Almighty Allah for all His blessings on us. To those listeners who have children with special needs, I think it's very important to know that you are not alone in this, that there's a lot that we can do for the children, that there is, with modern medicine, with rehabilitation, the outcomes for these children are much better today than they were 50 years ago or 30 years ago. So we must make sure we go and seek professional advice, professional help, and, 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 and give these children the opportunity to reach their true potential. And whatever Allah Ta'ala bestows us with whether it's a normal child or an abnormal child it is a gift from Allah, we must accept it from Him, we must be pleased with Him and we must, you know, give Him thanks and uh, we must just make the best of it and, and be patient with whatever situation we're in. It's not easy always, we do understand you know, what you go through as a parent and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of help out there, we can contact, you know, our Islamic societies, we can contact our Imam at the Masjid, the Father can speak to the Imam also to get spiritual guidance and spiritual motivation and spiritual support, which is very important when we're looking after these children. So I think the most important message to the parents is you're not alone. We are there for you. There's lots of people out there who would help you to love and care for the child. And there's a lot that can be, do, that can be done for a lot of these children. So, you know, just go out there and, 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 and look for all the help and support you need. And inshallah, everything will go well. Inshallah, Doctor, I can tell you we had a barakah-filled and a very informed evening with you, Dr. Ridwan Umar. You go well. Allah keep you. Allah protect you. And uh, inshallah, whatever we do, may we do it in the manner that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala most. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And Jazakallah Khaira to all the listeners for sending in your questions. I really enjoyed that. And you added it to a very, you know, buoyant show. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan. And thereafter, inshallah, we'll be joined by Pertinence of Punctuated.